2: A commitment to rescuing struggling rural communities, an effort to find a new voting system for the state, and expanded medical marijuana laws are all headed for debate in the upcoming legislative session. We'll ask our panel about those issues and more on this edition of Political Rewind. Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, so let me introduce today's panel right away. We start with the AJC's lead political writer, Jim Galloway. You read him in the Wednesday and Friday newspaper. He also oversees the Political Insider blog, part of Politically Georgia, part of (laughs) (laughs) myAJC.com. It's a lot to say, Jim. <laughs> Think of it as an, an onion. Yeah, or a Russian doll. I, oh, we don't want to talk Russians at this point. <laughs> he's he's listening. Right across from you is your colleague uh, Greg Bluestein, who is uh, the most prominent political reporter at the AJC, covered the entire governor's race, and you're already moving on to other races, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Hi, Greg. How's it going? Glad to be here. Good. Loretta Lapore is uh, with us. She's a Republican strategist. She was Sonny Perdue's press secretary back when Sonny was governor of Georgia, and she was the co-chair of Carly Fiorina's Georgia campaign during the 2016 presidential race. Loretta, hi. Hi. Good, Good to have here. you with us. And across from you, back for the first time, you haven't been here for quite a while, Representative Scott Holcomb, a Democrat. You represent Shambly, Doraville, Partagouinette. Brookhaven and Unincorporated DeKalb. Okay, basically, you're, but the district centered essentially in DeKalb County. That's right. All right. It's very nice to have a legislator on uh, the show uh, today. Um, Because no sooner have the midterm elections come to an end than we turn our attention to exactly what's going to happen in the General Assembly, which starts the second Monday in January. We'll have a new governor in place. There will be more Democrats than there have been in the legislature, which should produce some interesting uh, dynamics. And um, a lot is going to happen in this session. Plus, we're already going to begin to talk about the 2020 election, which really is coming up a lot more quickly than a lot of people realize. Okay, let's start with the legislative uh, uh, agenda. Uh, both of you have had stories in the past week that give us a, a, a pretty good taste of what we can expect. Jim, you talked to Speaker Ralston, did an extended interview with him, and among other things, he's really committed to this, uh, to the rural Uh, development program that he and his colleagues have been working on for some time
1: right it was i thought it was very significant that they rolled that out actually a week ago previous uh uh, jumping ahead of of uh, brian kemp and and uh, and uh, the, the, the new the go- new governor's agenda. Uh, obviously the, the state Senate is still getting itself organized with the new Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. So they were they, they jumped out of the box and they they put they, they, they set a fairly high bar on some really interesting issues. Uh, the broadband issue of course was was one on 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 new communications taxes uh, lower but broader. Uh, they would be hitting satellite TV and streaming services service, uh, services for the first time. Because
2: what they want to do is make up for the deficit of broadband in parts of rural Georgia. Right. The uh, the explanation being, without good internet service, there are so many things
1: you cannot accomplish. It's the key to healthcare. It's yeah. the key to education, and it's the key to to economic development. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So so we've got that piece of it. And Greg, you were out in Athens uh, this past week when Brian Kemp made his first major speech of the session he too talked about rural development um it, how much difference do you see you read uh, galloway's sure. piece i'm sure uh, how much in sync are the House leaders and the governor on this issue right now.
3: They were, they were simpatico when it came to rural development, and those issues. What we didn't hear from Brian Kemp was any mention of any socially or cultural leaders. issues like, like no. Jim got to ask no. Speaker know, Ralston about. Uh, what was one of the more interesting takeaways from Jim's piece about Speaker Ralston was his serious concerns about religious liberty, um, Governor, like Kemp, did not mention, make any mention of religious liberty. Uh, every time he's asked about it, he, he goes back to saying that he would sign in the 1993 version not one word less, not one word more. But the question is whether or not we're going to see conservatives push, give, put any political capital behind that. And what we heard from interviews with, from Speaker Ralston, from Kemp's speech, and from Republican leaders up and down. Uh, uh, the ranks was essentially a focus on pocketbook issues, economy, rural development, uh, and the like, and and really a, a sort of no appetite for many social issues. We know that could probably change, but yeah. right now that's what they're talking about.
2: So for the time being, I do want to get to the social agenda, which certainly Brian Kemp emphasized during his campaign. But before we go there, Scott, let me bring you into this conversation. I mean, rural development has been something that you've seen uh, over the course of the last really two sessions become a bigger and bigger matter in the House, is there a bipartisan
4: appetite for addressing the uh, needs of rural Georgia right now? I, I think that there is. I, I think I will say, though, that the base of Republican support in Georgia right now is rural. And so that's not an accident in terms of this focus. But I do think that there are opportunities for rural support or, or bipartisan rural support, and particularly on broadband and on health care expansion. I have been a very strong proponent of expanding Medicaid. If we have to do it as a waiver, that's fine. But I think that that's more the answer in terms of where we need to go. And if I was striking a deal, I would say anything on Rural broadband has to be coupled with Medicaid expansion. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, go ahead. No,
1: no, no. I'm saying that's news. Pay attention to that. Okay. Uh, go ahead. But
3: I'd add too that Republicans might not need any Democratic support for that. We'll see. Yeah. But, but um, you know, as it stands right now, Republicans. Uh, there has to be a majority vote for a Medicaid expansion, but they all, they still have a majority of both chambers, so they might not need Republican support to get there. But, look, you could see a grand compromise. I don't know.
4: I, I agree that they don't need our support, but I think that, the, look, Look at the facts, 90% of hospitals that have failed in rural areas in this country are in states that have not expanded Medicaid. The, the evidence is there, and one of the benefits of Georgia being a laggard here is we have seen what has worked and has not worked in other states, and I think the data is pretty compelling that this is the way to go. Uh, I, I firmly agree with the notion, however, that rural broad- broadband is essential for both economic, healthcare, and educational opportunities in the rural areas. It's akin to modern highways, it, it is an infrastructure issue. And the bottom line is there is no free market solution, which is why the state government has to look at getting involved.
2: So, Loretta, Galloway caught me making the most fundamental mistake of somebody asking questions. I was thinking about my next question
4: Question. while
2: Holcomb (laughs) was making news. (laughs) And the question I was framing was one that, in fact, came out of a part of what he said a minute ago. The rural uh, initiative that the House is so interested in right now uh, does you know, it's completely compatible with the way that Governor Like Kemp ran his campaign. He focused on rural Georgia. So let me flip the the uh, equation on its head. If if we we understand the governor like is going to want to do something for rural Georgia, but how careful does he have to be as he moves forward that he's also doing something for the parts of the state that didn't vote for him?
0: Well, that's going to be very important this cycle, but rural Georgia and I think the case that needs to be made that that is not being made currently is that taking care of some of these issues in rural Georgia also helps suburban and urban areas. Healthcare, care, for example, that's a universal issue yeah. across Georgia, and it needs to be spoken about that way. It's not just a rural issue. There is also concern within urban areas of, of this state um, and, and suburban. And so we need to make sure that that's a statewide message. Um, the other thing, and, and I think waivers is probably the direction that they're going to do. I don't know about coupling this. I think we've heard from both um, the governor-elect and the speaker that waivers seem to be there. Seems to be more appetite for that. Um, we know when we left off the session last year, there was a there was a bill that had had gone through much work in both chambers around broadband, and in the very very final minutes, just didn't make it yeah, across it the fell, finish line. Fell. And and I know that all of the parties have been working through this. You know. Over the year, and so we're likely to see that come out real early in the session.
2: Um, Jim, the speaker in your interview said to you, "We don't want to rely on the federal government for health care," uh, right. s- suggesting that he's not still going to support uh, what, Medicaid expansion. Uh, and
1: and there, there was no in, in the in the in the World Development Council report there was no mention of Medicaid expansion, no Medi- uh, mention of Medicaid waivers. He he. Kind of, the speaker kind of hinted that if, if if it was going to be talked about, it was going to have to be an initiative out of out of uh, uh, Governor Kemp's office. You, uh, but, but go but ahead. If I could. But if I could, sure. The one thing that was in there that was very interesting was an. I mean, the, the House basically declared an all-out. Uh, assault on the certificate of need process for hospitals across the state of Georgia, which is not necessarily a rural issue. In fact, one could argue that it's much more important to metro Atlanta. So the most simple
2: explanation, I think it's safe to say, of a certificate of need is that a hospital cannot simply go out and buy an MRI machine. It has to have clearance approval uh, from the state before it does that, Uh, uh, presuming that uh, there's got to be some... uh, 10,000-foot view of who's, get, who's spending money on
1: what right. equipment no, nor, and nor, nor, the like. Nor can an ambulatory a surg, a surgical center set up shop across from a, a right. hospital with an emergency room.
2: Okay, so why is that? It, why, it's interesting that Galloway says, Scott, this is, uh, uh, it, it's part of the rural package, but he sees it as very important to the rest of the state as well.
4: Well, there's a lot of controversy over it, yeah. so I, I, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But the, but these issues, Loretta is right, is that these issues of health care do. You, Match um, or the interest match across rural, suburban, and cities because the area that I represent, the hospitals in the area, they want Medicaid expansion too. The thing about the waiver is that actually can look exactly like Medicaid expansion. It's really just a political dodge to say that we're doing something different. Greg, you're nodding.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, a Medicaid waiver is is, is the same thing in in some sense as Medicaid expansion because it's more federal funding for the Medicaid program. The Kemp campaign has always said we're not accepting Medicaid. We're accepting Affordable Care Act waivers, which is a little bit different, uh, to stabilize private insurance markets. Uh, But look, on the CON issue, the Certificate of Need, I quizzed dozens of of lawmakers about what they think the sleeper issue of the year is going to be, because there's always something that creeps up on us. And many of them said they think CON is going to be a knockout, drag-down fight.
0: CON is always highly controversial. Why? It's a tough issue. Well, for some of the reasons that Jim mentioned, they're different, the, the controversy around CON in Metro is Again, different that cer- than rural. that's certificate, cer- cer- certificate
2: of need. Certificate of Good. need. go ahead. Or too
0: commonly as CON, <laughs> yep. um, for obvious reasons. You know, I think in Metro area, it's about competition. Right. And you have many more hospitals in, in metro Atlanta, you have more surgical centers, imaging centers, you know, all of these. What certificate need essentially is is the, um, the community health department's ability to regulate health care. This is where the regulatory component comes in. Um, CON approvals take four ever, yeah. <laughs> and they require their own campaigns, by and large, um, to get approves. And so what you find is you end up with different systems and hospital systems really competing. And this is mentioned in the rural healthcare the report that came out um, from the legislature study group um, that, that there may be some um, accommodation so that there can't be that kind of confrontational other entities contesting at the same level certain um, I know this is getting very complex, but certain so for example, if one hospital wants an open heart surgery facility, hospital B cannot come out and wholeheartedly contest. so that let effort. me let me
2: see if I can set this in the broadest terms and see if I've got it right. Um, for rural areas of the state, Jim, you might want to ease regulations on certificate of need because they've already got a a deficit of facility health care facilities, clinics, hospitals. Uh, the technology. On the other hand, in Metro Atlanta, where you've got Emory University Hospital expanding like crazy, Piedmont, Univers- uh, Piedmont Hospital expanding like crazy, I- in that kind of setting, the certificate of need, as Loretta was describing it, plays a different role. Right.
1: In, in, in Metro Atlanta and places like it, what you have is you have a health, health insurance uh, or a medical industry driven by health insurance by by health insurance premiums there's lots of money and all uh, and the, the the nonprofit organizations and the for profit organizations are chasing after it in rural georgia georgia that cash is not there yeah. so so the, the, it's it's a different dynamic I,
2: I love the fact that you're telling us this is a sleeper issue, that we're all going to end up watching, even though we're not even thinking about it, except on this show today. It wasn't on my list of things to talk
3: about. Exactly. No, and don't forget, too, <laughs> there are about two dozen or so rural hospitals have either closed or in financial distress. And the other pillar of Kemp's health care policy is expanding that rural Healthcare tax credit that Jeff Duncan was actually the author of in the State House. Now he's the most, what we're assuming, the most powerful, one of the most powerful people in the Republican controlled Senate. And so he's going to make that a priority as well.
2: Scott, um, another issue that you are certainly going to be asked to take up is really uh, multifaceted. Uh, You're going to look at election uh, issues. Certainly, uh, you're going to be asked to look at recommendations that come out of what was Brian Kemp's commission studying new voting machines. Uh, but beyond that, I'm assuming you are also going to be looking at um, le- le- uh, legislation that may revamp how we do, uh, perform different kinds of votes. Mary Margaret Oliver was on the show on Wednesday. She wants to look at things like exact match, how do we deliver provisional ballots, absentee ballots. So what we do and how we vote is going to be a big issue this
4: session too, yes? Yes. It will be. Uh, I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to get much accomplished, but I think that it is going to be a big issue. In terms of the state's voting machines, I think that there is pretty broad support that those need to be updated. It's fairly well known that we use machines from 2002 that operate on a Microsoft 2000 operating system that hasn't even been updated since 2010. It's a joke. And my position is we need hand marked paper ballots with optical scanners. That's the position of most experts that have looked at this. There seems to be a big push to cater to the vendors. Uh, Vendors want to spend or have the state spend about $100 million. Uh, I keep saying watch the money because I'm sure that they're making massive campaign contributions as we head into the session. So we, we need to have a discussion about that. We need reform on all those issues, voter match, purging, et cetera. Ideally, these should be done in a bipartisan way and ultimately unanimously be great. But again, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. You know, it's interesting, Loretta,
2: um, because we're gonna, <laughs> you, you'd think getting a new voting machine in place for the state could be a relatively easy matter. Except what you've got now is Scott Holcomb, like a lot of Democrats, particularly, there may be some Republicans who are there as well, who's saying, let's have hand marked ballots. Let's fill in the, the bubble, whatever, uh, uh, because that's the way to really uh, uh, avoid hacking of any sort, feed them into an optical scanner. But Brad Raffensperger uh, will become Secretary of State, and he's made it clear he wants another touch screen machine, he, he wants a, a, a paper trail. But interestingly enough, on something you would think is as simple as that, we look like we're going to have some confrontations.
0: Well, that's what it's come down to. I mean, the commission (laughs) this this past week has looked at, do, do you have it, as Scott suggested, do people mark the ballot before it goes to the machine, or does it go to the machine and then print out the paper ballot in which the voter would then verify their vote was cast correctly and then drop it into a bucket? That's, that's where we are now in terms of this debate on which type of machine we're gonna move forward with. I thought one of the interesting things to come out of the commission discussion was instead of purchasing, the new machines is to lease them. And with technology advancing at such a rapid speed, that seemed a viable option, um, particularly because there, there would need to be such a significant appropriation to update those machines, which are the oldest in the nation, I
3: believe, almost at this point. Yeah. That was one of the recommendations from Winky Lee, the Georgia Tech cybersecurity expert, who, who basically said we're going to have this entire debate again in a decade or so if you don't lease the machines and it's cheaper, at least up front, not to, not to purchase them and spend the 30 to 150. There's a wide range of, of cost estimates. Um, and I, I think that will be part of the debate. And really, uh, there is a willingness from Republicans I've talked to to, to, to address a broader changes to the system too that go beyond these voting machines as well. To look at the uneven practice of of, of counting absentee and provisional mm-hmm. ballots, maybe even a look at some of the voter cancellation purge issues as well too. So this could be. We didn't mention this as a sleeper issue because this could be the signature issue. Of <laughs> that,
1: well, here's what. But 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 I'll, but I'll tell you at, at the at the biennial meeting in in, in Athens this week, I, I ran into Ed Reinders, who is the chairman of the House Governmental Affairs Committee, which is. That's the that's the body that will be get a first look at all of these things from voting machines to to voting process, processes. And he 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 declared that he was going to be probably the busiest man in the legislature. I'll bet Senate he session. will be.
2: Okay, so isn't is this an opportunity for Governor Elect Kemp? Um, there was so much controversy, and we're going to talk about one and just one item uh, that that uh, a story that broke in the AJC uh, over over this weekend that. It's pretty interesting, but there's so much controversy about the way the election was run, everything from how you with the purge of voters, all the other things that we read about, accusations of voter suppression. You were out there in Athens when Brian Kemp gave his first major speech, and he sounded a much more, you tell us, moderate. He was, he was moderate in his tone. He moderated his message. Would this be an opportunity for him to, in fact, bring Democrats and Republicans together and signal he really is willing to work with both sides to say, yeah, I am interested in looking at some election reform uh, measures.
3: Sure, it certainly would be. I mean, it's something that he said in an interview with us uh, a a couple weeks ago that he's open to as well. Um, the contours of that are still undefined, yeah but he but what he does is he pits it as not concerns from Democrats but as concerns from local elections officials who have who have who did struggle with how to count provisional ballots, long lines you know unequal standards for how many uh, voting machines should be at each site right i mean if there if there are state standards for that it 's a lot harder for for Democrats to claim voter suppression um, if if the, if each voting precinct has to have a certain amount of voting machines
1: but you do have an ideological divide here and and, and the language that, yeah. that Republicans and Democrats use, Re- Republicans are, are always talking about voter security, and of course, uh, uh, Democrats are always talking about ballot access. Right. And the question is, can those two that can those two can you come them, together can, concerns, concerns
2: coexist? Scott, what do you? How much of an appetite is there among the people in your caucus, the Democrats in the, in the House? to bury the hatchet and work in a collegial way with uh, Governor Kemp. How much anger is left uh, in in the uh, aftermath of, of a very contentious election? What do you see as the future of
4: how you work with the governor? Uh, It's a question mark uh, I think is is the honest answer. Uh, I think that there is a lot of um, uh, strained feelings still and part of what we're looking at is to see which direction he goes in. Uh, I think the governor elect has a very strong tendency to moderate whatever he's saying to whatever room he's in and it adjusts pretty uh, rapidly and easily and so what are his core principles what are his objectives what is he gonna push for as governor and we don't know what that's gonna be like is he gonna take a very hard right stance if so that's not going to be uh, an easy path? Uh, or is he going to moderate more and really try to take steps that I think will move Georgia forward Loretta, you, with good you, cooperation? I'm sorry,
2: Scott. Uh, we've got to take a break in a minute. Before we do, you worked for a governor who came in after decades and decades and decades of democratic control of the governor's mansion. Sonny okay. Perdue shocked everyone by winning that election. And so there was a lot of bad feeling Uh, by the uh, other party, the Democratic Party, about him. What do you do? Do you start bringing in the Scott Hokums for individual meetings with the governor? You know, sit him down in the governor's office. The governor says, tell me about what you want to do, Scott. Let me tell you what I want. How do you deal with that?
0: Well... Uh, it, it was a little different because you had a Republican governor, and you still had two Democratic chambers. Right. Right. So he had to work with members of those chambers, and he had been a Democrat before yeah. um, being a Republican and and winning the governorship. And so, um, yes, you do, you are working across party lines. One one bill I can think of in particular was a child protection act. We were the last state in the nation to have a child protection act, and the governor reached across the line to the lieutenant governor at the time and said, who had been trying to get that bill passed for several years and said, let's do this together let's get this done
1: together. We're
2: going to see, see that kind of... Do you think that's a, a, the sort of thing that a Kemp will do, given
1: that he does have control of both chambers? It's something that he can do. It's, yes. it's just a matter of will he do okay. it. And by the way, I, uh, Sonny started with with a Republican Senate because he was able to, between November and January, he was able to flip... Oh, it. he flipped yes. seats. He, flipped, he flipped got three people three to flip parties. That's, that's right. That's right. So he started with a Republican Senate, <laughs> even though he had a Democratic lieutenant governor. <laughs> yeah. All right. right. We got to right. get we got to get to a break. I do want to talk some about Social issues
2: a little bit uh, when we come back, uh, because that is certain as it is every session to be something we'll be talking about from January well into the end of March. We'll come right back. This is Political Rewind.
1: You've counted on GPB throughout 2018 to bring you insights into important issues and events, and you'll continue to rely on GPB in the new year. Your support makes all the programs that matter to you possible. As you support the organizations that are important to you during this season of giving, please include GPB. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thanks and happy holidays
2: and we 're back on uh, political rewind, Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, Loretta Laporte, Scott Hokum are uh, with us. Greg, let me turn to you on this first. Uh, you pointed out at the very top of the show that in his speech to the legislators uh, out in Athens, he didn 't mention the social issues that he 'd really highlighted in his campaign, so uh, he did not talk about the religious liberty bill, uh, although he did say at Different points. Yes, I support religious liberty if it's modeled after the federal law, which was passed by Bill Clinton, a Democratic uh, uh, president. And he didn't talk about his expanded uh, gun carry. Uh, proposals, which were also something he discussed on the campaign. How quickly are those things going to be bubbling up?
3: Well, the, the expanded gun already has, right? Uh, at least one lawmaker, a Republican lawmaker, has already introduced that bill. So what that means is the, these debates aren't going away. The big question is whether or not powerful Republicans like, like Governor-elect Kemp, like Speaker Ralston, like Jeff Duncan, and, and, and their chamber's leadership get behind them and put political capital there. And that's going to be the open question for Brian Kemp. Uh, odds are, I mean, all the signals he's sending right now is that he's not going to put significant capital behind this. That He's going to focus on rural. He's going to focus on his education plan to raise teacher pay and fund school security. That doesn't mean those issues are going away. And that doesn't mean he won't be pressured, let's say, in February or March to come right back to it and do something for the conservatives who made him the, the, the nominee.
1: But, but, you, but you've got specific lawmakers in the Capitol who are highly vulnerable to any debate over issues like that. You've got Jan Jones in North Fulton, Sharon Cooper in Cobb County. You have Renee Unnerman in Gwinnett. Yep. All of whom are in districts that are moving more and more to the Democratic Party. Exactly. Right. And, you got, and, and, and you do have 2020 coming up fast. Well, but the Senate, Jim,
2: we all know this— the Senate is the incubator for that kind of measure. It has become that, yeah. Yes, yeah. but so, yes, it could change given those dynamics you just described. On the other hand, in your conversation with Ralston, Speaker, once again,
1: expressed skepticism about that kind of social measure. The House lost 11 seats, uh, and it's coming close up on 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 uh, it, it was the House's membership. 75. 75, 75, 75 Democrats. That's. That's very, very close to to really stopping some significant issues. You think?
4: Yeah, my take is (laughs) I don't think that there's a lot of enthusiasm in the House. Uh, I don't think that this is something that's going to get a lot of traction. And part of me says do it, because if you do it, you're going to lose 10 to 15 more seats in 2020.
0: I think that's a reality. I mean, I think to Jim's point, he's he's. Put out there some some legislators that will be vulnerable, and what we've seen in this last cycle is that we lost several in metro. In particular, all the people that you mentioned were female legislators, right, right. and we lost already a handful of Republican um, female legislators in the metropolitan area. I don't think the speaker wants to go down that
1: road. But the problem is that the House House Republican Caucus and the Senate Republican Caucus are actually more conservative now because the ones who lost in metro Atlanta. We're pretty. We might be considered moderates.
0: Right. We're moderate well, to the well, Jordan. several of them voted previously against um, RIFRA.
2: Okay. So what are we saying here? Do we imagine that a bill like RIFRA gains traction, uh, but that the governor quietly says, "We don't need this right now, folks." You know, goes to the speaker and says, "Get out there on my behalf, block this thing." Ralston doesn't need the governor. He's already on his own uh, fought this thing for a couple of years now. But where does Kemp stand in this kind of uh, uh, situation?
0: I don't know. I think to Greg's point, that's kind of the the question as yeah. to how far. I mean, we do know that on his transition team, Virginia Galloway sits on his transition yeah. team. She's with the Faith Christian and Freedom Co- Coalition. Fr- yeah, fr- right. And so she Alan serves on the, on the policy committee, right? And Alan Fox um, obviously is on um, the transition team as well. And so, um, you know, that's kind of an Open-ended question is to, you know, I think at Biennial he set he was trying to set a tone, a tone of unity, specifically, a tone of cooperation. He chose issues where Republicans and Democrats can find common ground, um, no matter what what shade of conservative or liberal they may be, but where we know there has to be work in the state for Georgia to move forward. And I think that he's been conciliatory also in the past week in meeting with Uh, Mayor Bottoms, um, and the new, I know we're going to talk a little bit about a new corporate relocation, Um, and so those are big things. So I think if you look at where his, what he's said this past week, um, if that's an indicator of where we're going, I think that those social issues are going to take a second, a back seat.
2: Uh, just to uh, clarify, uh, Virginia Galloway, part of Faith and Freedom Coalition, which of course was founded by Ralph Reed, so very conservative organization that has very clear ideas about a social agenda that they'd like
4: uh, to establish. Scott. Yeah, Bill, I'll, I'll add there that I think one. Um, one idea that the governor really should consider is that Georgia is one of five states that doesn't have a hate crimes bill. Uh, that would be well received <coughs> in my caucus if he were to embrace support for that. We should also, I think, start looking at non-discrimination procedures and, and policies as well. Uh, so w- we will be looking very carefully to see how that, that moves forward. But if, if I were to make a prediction now, I don't think uh, RIFRA moves in 2019. Yeah. And what
3: Representative Holcomb's um, sort of talking about is what's ping-ponging along the Republican caucus, which is maybe, especially for conservatives who, who support religious liberty, but also want to put the perennial debate behind them, sort of, sort of grand compromise, where there's a civil rights 2.0 part of it. Yes, there's there's the, there's the 1993 version of RIFRA, and it's also coupled together with hate crimes legislation and or the sexual orientation protections the Democrats have long wanted. If you package that in together, you still might not have the votes you want, but it could be seen as some sort of... And you asked um, uh, Speaker Ralston about that, but he didn't really give you no, a...
1: No, no, he wanted to think about that one yeah. <laughs> a little bit more. Yeah.
3: I can tell you, he's probably already thinking about it, but he's not hes not like, quite ready to talk about it yet.
1: Well,
2: you know, it's interesting, because uh, Scott makes the point that we don't have a hate crimes uh, measure here. And uh, despite the fact that it, it is 2019, and, and we think that we've become more progressive in many ways, uh, the fact is that protections for, on the basis of uh, sexual orientation, uh, are still lacking in the state. We have no civil rights statute. That was, of course, one of the things you can say about the federal RIFRA, is that it's accompanied by a civil rights law, which does, in fact. On one hand, it protects religious organizations that have strong feelings about you know, whether they hire or not, don't hire certain people, but it also protects minority groups against discrimination. We have no such law in Georgia.
0: That's right. And in many other states, so when the case is often made about needing to push this forward and that other states have referral laws on the books that align with the federal statute, they also have. Civil rights loss Civil on the books. Let, so that's that's one of that's one of the deficits that we clearly have in this who, debate.
3: And who are the Republicans most forcefully advocating the, the suburban Republicans yeah. who are now yeah. mostly gone yeah. from from the legislature?
0: Um,
2: Loretta mentioned it. Uh, we saw an example of city-state cooperation. You wrote about it, uh, Greg, between Mayor Bottoms and Governor Deal over a very complicated uh, land acquisition uh, package the gulch uh essentially the bottom line is norfolk southern a fortune 500 company owns that land
3: in the gulch right you got it they own land in the gulch they said if that land could be sold Uh, to redevelop the Gulch into a $5 billion mini-city in the heart of downtown Atlanta, then they would move their headquarters to Midtown Atlanta, bringing a $575 million new campus and about 850 jobs. Uh, That required an unprecedented level of cooperation from the governor's office and City Hall to work together on getting this Gulch package uh, passed by the Atlanta City Council, uh, and that required the governor and his top aide to to wade into the heart of a city council debate in a way that we haven't seen really in the And
2: past. we weren't really I, – I, I don't think, uh, Jim, because we asked about this at the time, gee, why is the governor – getting so involved in the city council deliberations no, no. over the Gulch because we didn't really understand no, 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 what no. the deal was. And we, and we had, yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, think, think of the image of, of, of Chris Riley, uh, in the governor's chief of staff in flip flops, going to, going to lobby, uh, 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 city council members on, on this issue. One thing, you know, it, Bill, you and I are old, uh, when you, when, you, when, Jim. When, we, when we, when we, when we first came, when we first started working here in Atlanta, uh, there uh, under uh, underground atlanta was at its height yeah. you know it was a section of 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 atlanta that had been kind of that th- that had been built over right and and it was a, it became a fascinating uh a night spot for a while it's a, it's less so now and now we have a a a development that's going to to build a what a 40 foot ceiling over the gulch and create yet another but massively larger underground atlanta yeah yeah, good point,
2: uh, Scott. What do you think? Uh, Brian Kemp walked across the intersection. He crossed over from the state capitol to visit Keisha Lance Bottoms in her office at Atlanta City Hall. Good sign. Does it be, does it suggest to you that they are going we're going to continue uh, in in your eyes to have some open lines of communication that suggest the chiefs. Head officers of both the city and the state can work together?
4: Uh, I I think it is a a, a very good start, and I certainly commend him for that. Uh, I will be critical when needed, but I will also say nice things when appropriate. And I think that that was a very, um, very solid gesture. Uh, But the fact is, the state needs the city of Atlanta. The metro region is 78 percent, roughly, of our state's GDP. So we need to have a successful capital region uh, in terms of the economy. So I'd like to see more of that going forward.
2: But we should point out, Loretta, that partnership works both ways, because it was Kasim Reed's uh, partnership with Nathan Deal that lent muscle to funding for the Savannah uh, Harbor expansion. So, the the you know the rest of the state gets right. some benefits out of this kind of partnership too.
0: Well, right, and that alliance was important because we had a Democratic president at the time, right. Barack Obama, and so Kasim Reed. Um, you know, it, it, we had a lot more cachet walking in together, but but not only because depending on who's sitting in the White House, but when you look at federal agencies, they much prefer to provide funding to municipalities, to states, to projects where there is intergovernmental cooperation that is key to how they appropriate or, or grant funds. And so that relationship is critical to a lot of projects um, throughout the state. So not only the Savannah Port, um, but, and the Brunswick Port for that matter. The Mercedes but
1: Benz headquarters the, as well. The
0: headquarters, but also to projects like the Atlanta Beltline, for mm-hmm. example, which requires significant federal funding. Um, any kind of major transportation project, MARTA, whatever the ATL decides to put forward. So, so it's very important that we, have um, state and local um, officials working together cooperatively, and that that's seen publicly.
2: So, uh, Jim, I, I'm also hearing in what Loretta is saying that this time around, it's Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, who might need Brian Kemp to advocate for her in a Republican Washington.
1: Right, and and but 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 to Loretta's point. Uh, that relationship could very well take a hairpin turn in 2020. We right. don't know. Right. And also
3: right. she'll need him in Republican gold dome because what is she probably most worried about the, the other day? There was a study committee hearing at the Georgia Capitol about the state takeover of Atlanta's crown jewel, the Hartsfield Jackson
2: and, Airport. and boy, that meeting, they sounded more determined than ever. Scott is nodding to try to do something to take over the airport. Is that going to really bubble up and be something that you're going to have to deal with this session?
4: I think it will. And certainly there seems like a lot of enthusiasm for it in the Senate. I'm not sure the reception that it will receive in the House. Uh, I'm not a big fan of just changing structures just to change structures. And I have real skepticism in terms of what they're trying to do. Uh, But I think the, the 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 people who are very committed to this are not going to let it go. There's
1: a, there's, there, there may also be a, a, a game of three-dimensional chess going on here, uh, and that Delta is a, 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 a has become a very outspoken corporate uh, entity in Atlanta on certain issues, including uh, including religious liberty, and this is something. and And right now, Delta is pretty much commands. Uh, the the Hartsfield. I mean, it's yes, it's in the city, but it uh, the Delta pretty much controls that. And that if if that control is 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 threatened, well, that may be a message to Delta on other issues. Ah, all
2: bad. right. I got to get to a break. <laughs> uh, do you want give him a last I was say, word? Say,
3: you talk about an ascendant corporate power, and the, under the Gold Dome, it's Delta. Not only did they get the tax break. In the special session, but they also basically got the end of any effort to commercialize the West Georgia Airport that they had long feared uh, in Paulding County.
2: Nathan Deal did them a favor, turned it into uh, an academy for training. Right. You Got it. You got it. <laughs> All right, we got to get another break out of the way. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a story that has appeared in the Atlanta Constitution in the last day or so uh, that has to do with something that happened right before the midterm election, and we're also going to talk just a little bit. We're going to go back in time with Galloway and uh, uh, talk about his reminiscences of an early indication of Donald Trump not being so popular among certain (laughs) people in the state. We'll get to that when we're back on Political Rewind.
1: I'm Corva Coleman. Politics dominated the headlines in 2018, but it was a big news year for a lot of other reasons, too, like the cave rescue in Thailand that captivated the world. All of the kids and their soccer coach have made it out of the flooded cave in northern Thailand. So much happened in 2018, and we were there for it all. Here's how to help us tackle 2019. Make a contribution now at gpb.org or 800-222-4788.
4: I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, we field a question from a curious second grader about her unfortunate encounter with a caterpillar. Is it okay if you guys can study about the ass caterpillar? Well, the thing is, I got stuck. It itches a lot. Are there other caterpillars that sting? It's all things caterpillar on Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
1: This afternoon at 3 on GPB.
2: On the weekend before the election, you will recall that a blockbuster report, a press release, was dropped on all of us in the media. The uh, Secretary of State's office put out a news release saying that the state Democratic Party had attempted to breach the security of the state's voting system. It was, of course, a huge story at the time uh, because, among other things, Brian Kemp was still Secretary of State. And questions were immediately raised as to whether this was a political ploy by uh, the Republicans, by the Kemp campaign uh, in the final hours before the election. Okay, so that happened then. In the month or so since then, any number of you out there who listen to this show and uh, tweet us, uh, post on Facebook live to us, send me emails, have said, gee, whatever happened? Is there a story there or not? Or was it all uh, simply an election campaign ploy? All right. So uh, the AJC's uh, Alan Judd, an investigative reporter, has been looking at this uh, situation and he, he published a, a, a lengthy takeout on this, Jim. Without going into the weeds on this, the, the, I, what I came away from on this was Judd suggests that we know that it was an independent party that wanted to test the security of George's votes because there have been problems in the past. Uh, that individual found vulnerabilities and did in fact take them to the Democratic Party to say, here's something you ought to look at. Um what Judd's story essentially says is that if the Democrats had been the first to get the news out on this, the story could have been once again the Secretary of State's office is not protecting uh, the security of your registration, whatever. Instead, they didn't do anything, and the Kemp folks had the opportunity to say Democrats were trying to tamper with the election. Yeah, the,
1: the, 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 the way that the story got out was a little bit more complicated. Right. This fellow uh, did contact Democrats. Democrats did send something to their attorneys and a few uh, technical experts, uh, uh, including a lawyer who was representing uh, defendants in a lawsuit challenging the, the legitimacy of Georgia's voting machines. That the lawyer uh, sent, gave, sent word to some federal authorities, including the FBI, the FBI and such, they contacted Kemp's office. And then what you had was another, uh, an, uh, a, a, a web-based journal, uh, c- cyber journalist uh, site called Kemp's office, said they were going to publish a story about this leak, and boom, Several hours later, you have the press uh, press, uh, uh, press release dropped, accusing Democrats of actually doing the, the leak. This is what this is is pretty much uh, what what Judd found is this is your typical White House white hat in, uh, white hat hacking incident yeah, where in you an effort pro- to probe to probe probe for vulnerabilities and and Kemp's campaign slapped a back, black hat on it. Um, okay, all that happened back then.
2: Uh, The the bottom line, by the way, the Kemp campaign uh, responded to us. We asked them uh, what they think about this new story, which suggests that this was a ploy by the Kemp uh, campaign, by the Cooperative Secretary of State's office. And they say, look, this is under investigation by GBI. We're not going to say anything about it right now. Um, I know Alan Judd worked hard on this story. I'm not sure how much new information we got. We're still waiting uh, for more evidence that uh, of what really
3: happened here. And, and that's, that's something we, we're still not sure about yet because it's still a pending investigation. Um, we're, we're not getting too many details from the GBI right now. Uh, and what, we've, what we understand is last we checked too, um, the state Democratic officials hadn't been even contacted yet. And that might have changed in the last week or so, but that's the last time we checked with them. They hadn't been contacted yet. So there's still a lot of open questions, but remember the timing. This was the Sunday before the election, yeah. the eve of Donald Trump's visit. So a lot of things were going on then. And the timing of it uh, raised a lot of eyebrows.
2: You know, Scott, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is, of course, throughout the campaign, there were questions as to whether Brian Kemp should step down from his position. Wouldn't it have relieved everyone of this notion that he was uh, uh, operating with a massive conflict of interest? But I wonder about something. Even if he had stepped down, when a story like this broke, is anybody going to suggest that the people who are all there because he put them there aren't perhaps also going to
4: have the same kind of... uh, uh, prejudices that, he, that Kemp himself was accused of? I think that's fair. But I also think that you could build systems and processes to make the public have confidence in the system. That's sort of a different conversation. But on, on this issue, one we know, not conspiracy theory things, but actually provably, the Secretary of State's office has had, had issues going back to at least August of 2016 of vulnerabilities of being poorly run, uh, and even before that with the, d- the data breach in 2015. With this issue, when I saw it, I immediately thought it was nonsense. I filed an Open Records Act request. Again, they hid behind the investigation exemption. The the one document that they provided was dated the day after they announced the investigation. Hmm. So I'm going to stay on this. I also think that all of the emails, texts, and messages between the campaign and the government workers should be released to the public. Loretta. What's your take on all this?
0: Well, I think to the article specifically, I think it is a full accounting of what happened. I don't, to to multiple points raised here, there is no more conclusive evidence than we had going into the story. Um, And I think that um, we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out, candidly.
2: I'm sorry. The problem, though, Jim, is this is yet another uh, uh, cloud (laughs) to sit on top of. People's concerns about whether we had a fair and honest election, and how the Secretary of State's office dealt with
1: the election. It's going to affect. It's going to affect the debate over the voting machines. It's going to affect every 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 debate over voting procedures in 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 the House Governmental Affairs Committee and its Senate uh, Senate counterpart. One thing I would I would I would uh, just offer up is, is it's it's very possible that when Democrats take over the U.S. House uh, in January. Uh, that this incident uh, could become one of their one of their their topics of investigation.
2: Yeah, well, there's already been. Am I right, Greg, that we've already seen uh, Democrats who will be in positions of, of control on committees who have suggested they want to bring Brian Kemp to Washington and. Uh, uh, ha- have him
3: testify. Exactly. We've already seen an incoming U.S. House Democratic uh, committee chair say that they're going to they're they're considering subpoenaing not only Brian Kemp but also officials in 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 North Dakota and uh, North Carolina where there are also s- certain issues.
2: It's so another reason I, I, I wonder if it isn't in the best interest of the governor elect to uh, say, let's tackle some of the concerns that we've been uh, seeing here. Kind of turn a page on, on this,
4: Scott. I think that would be smart, but a lot of times people don't do smart things in this business. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right.
0: well it's imperative, really, that, that this issue be addressed during yeah. this legislative session. Yeah. Because if you're looking to 2020, we don't want to have a repeat in 2020. And it will take time to deploy whatever solution. That's right. Is decided upon. Yeah. Whatever I mean, type of machine is decided upon. Whatever type of procedures and protocols are put in place for for local counties, uh, you know, all of that has to be set. It takes a lot of time to get that work done.
1: And and we have not mentioned the hundred thousand or so missing votes uh, from the lieutenant governor's race right. between Jeff Duncan and Sarah. Right, which may have been
2: a function of faulty electronic touchscreen machines, right, potentially. Right,
1: but so far, we've there's been a lack of curiosity into, into, into that incident.
2: All right, we've only got a few minutes left, and I got a lot of ground that I was hoping to cover, some of which we will, some of which I'm afraid we won't get to. Number one, I've been saying for two shows, we talk a little about the farm bill, which finally passed. Uh, let's just limit at this conversation and come back to it next week. Uh uh, Sonny Perdue, uh, Loretta, your old boss, did not get what he wanted and what the president seemed to want and what a lot of Republicans wanted, which was a work requirement for SNAP benefits or food stamp benefits. It fell out because there just wasn't enough support for it.
0: That's right. And it was more imperative to get the farm bill through because farmers need to rely upon some of the other provisions, most importantly, predictability. So as they get ready to plant, they need to know what they can expect for the next five years.
2: Uh, Blueberry farmers in Georgia are angry. They did not get the subsidies that they had uh, expected to get out of this bill,
4: right? Yeah, it is wild when you look at the the farm bill. How many people who are such strong free market advocates sure do love their subsidies when it comes to the farm bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the other
1: the other the other thing hidden in that is is it will now be legal to to grow Kemp everywhere. In hemp, the not kemp. Kemp, <laughs> kemp.
3: I'm sorry. No, <laughs> hemp. hemp on the kemp for hemp. hemp. I love that. <laughs> Hemp uh, in yeah. Georgia, <laughs> which is a huge sea change, right? I mean, that's a huge, that's also, a huge change, sea change,
1: and it could really affect the medicinal marijuana debate yeah. in the legislature yeah. in January. Yeah, and we know we're going to see that
2: debate come up again yeah. with a proposal for production of uh, of cannabinoid oil. If I said that in right, cannabis yes. cultivation, cannabis, uh, of cannabis. Okay, to create cannabinoid to create yes. cannabinoid oil. <laughs> oil. All yeah. right, uh, Jim Galloway. Let's talk for a minute. You recounted. Uh, this week, a story about something that happened when Eric Erickson, the WSB uh, radio talk show host and well-known conservative uh, nationwide, held an event here in 2015 when he brought the Republican candidates for president to Atlanta. Tell us why you brought that story up again
1: in your column and what this is all about. All right. Uh, Late this summer, we had the, the federal prosecutors in New York Uh, brought out their indictment against Michael Cohen, and that had this fascinating little paragraph that says in or somewhere in August or somewhere around August 2015, you had this meeting between Cohen, the publisher of uh, of uh, the National National Enquirer Enquirer." and a certain camp uh, member of the 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 Trump campaign. Uh, meeting to discuss a a catch and kill uh, uh, system to 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 dissuade uh, uh, the women who Trump uh, who alleged Trump had had affairs exactly with them. Yeah. exactly okay all right uh, on Wednesday uh, we found out it was the National Enquirer and now recent reporting says the guy in the room other guy in the room was Donald Trump all right so you've got that event but but At the same time that this was happening, uh, the first weekend in August, we had this three-day red state gathering that Eric uh, Erickson put together. And, of course, that was preceded a day earlier by the first CNN debate of Republican presidential candidates. Megyn Kelly asks Donald why he is so rude to women. The next day, Donald Trump says oh, she was just mad at me and she had blood, blood out coming of out of her whatever, whatever yeah. you know. Uh, it was a reference to menstruation. Eric Erickson drew a line in the sand, said, you're not coming to my event. Uh, and uh, and uh, Greg, you were there that weekend. It, it just Things just blew up there. He banned
2: him, Eric. I was there. Too. We all were uh, there, including Loretta. And Eric came out on the stage. He said, I just want you all to know I cannot allow Trump to come after these comments. Uh, My daughter uh, can't be exposed to this sort of stuff. She's here. Jeb Bush came out and said, I absolutely agree with uh, what uh, Eric has decided uh, uh, to do.
3: Most of the 16 or so candidates were actually there, too, and many of them agreed. And I will never forget, I mean, Eric Erickson actually made the announcement at a hotel bar the night before. Uh, And so a few reporters, I was not there, but a few reporters who were were having drinks got the scoop that night that that Donald Trump was disinvited.
2: And uh, the point of all this is to say, uh, Jim, you say the month of August of 2015 (laughs) was a month in which uh, Trump's uh, treatment of women uh, was 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 highlighted. It was not a single (laughs) event.
1: It didn't happen in a single room. It was a theme of the month. So as long as we're being nostalgic, Loretta Lapore, that was a huge victory for your
2: candidate. Carly Fiorina, why?
0: Well, she was coming off of her big debate and she had uh, scored a lot of points with the American public and was very well received here in Georgia and at Red State. And so that's my whole memory of that event. Nothing else. But um, yeah, it it was a it was a turn change moment for her in her campaign.
2: You uh, told us before the show went on the air that you the rooms you needed got bigger and bigger because so many people they were did. there to did. We see had her. a we hadn't
0: <laughs> scheduled fundraiser that evening, and so we had to change the room a couple of times to accommodate all the folks that wanted to attend. Right,
2: I wanted to get that in. Uh, I want to get one other quick item in. Uh, you were up, you know, we're never far away from another election. Nope. We always want to talk about the next election. You were up at an event in North Georgia with uh, John Ossoff. What was that all about?
3: Uh, he had his first town hall meeting in rural Georgia, and he struck a very populist chord there. He talked about the need for antitrust legislation, uh, the corruption in corporate politics, and the need for Democrats to band together and reject corporate money.
2: With the notion that perhaps this is the beginning of a Senate campaign on, at which he'll, uh, in which these issues will be what he runs on.
3: Exactly. I mean, he is not rolled out a bid for U.S. Senate, just like pretty much every other Democratic contender?
2: Scott, I'm sorry to do this to you with only about 30 seconds, but you're going to start being courted, you may already have been, by candidates for the U.S. Senate, Democrats to run against David Perdue. Do you see a clear Democratic challenger? Would you like to see the party get behind one candidate? Will Stacey Abrams run? Teresa Tomlinson told us on our show the other day, she's thinking about it. What's going to happen?
1: Will Scott Scott Holcomb Holcomb
4: run? Yeah, Will Scott. Yeah, are you thinking about running? Um, that's a lot of questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we're out of time. <laughs> Go ahead. What, say one quick thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that there will be one candidate on the Democratic side. I think that it will be a contested field, and I think that the, a strong candidate will run against Purdue in do, 2020. Do you want to be among them? Um, I'm not even thinking about that right now, and that's... Oh, that's
2: always a dangerous sign. Scott Holcomb, Loretta Lepore, Greg Bluestein, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for a great show today. Uh, We're out of here for now, but at 2 o'clock on Monday, we'll be right back with you with a new Rewind. Take care.